so my name is Jonathan. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, those of you uh, tuning in online. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians, and you'll see in your worship folder we're up to chapter 3 today, uh, reading from verse 1 to verse 13. So you can follow along. It's on page 977, yep, 977 of the Pew Bible if you want to turn there, uh, or in the Bible you have from home, uh, whatever you choose. Uh, I'm going to read, and then uh, as we have been doing each week uh, from Isaiah, I'll ask you to say those words with me, Uh, the grass withers, flowers fade, and so forth, okay? So from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Uh, And so say with me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So you may or may not have noticed in this passage, uh, the word mystery occurs several times. So just a question to start with, when you hear the word mystery, what kinds of things come into your mind? What types of thoughts, maybe a story, maybe a TV show or a movie? Usually the word mystery has connotations of something dark, right, or sinister, something that's inexplicable a puzzle even, something to be solved, usually like a murder mystery. But the Greek word that Paul uses here several times has a completely different meaning, or it's related, but it's also very different. It still means a secret, but it means an open secret, if that makes sense. Maybe not. Maybe it's mysterious. Yep, somebody got that. Good job, whoever that was. I think it was Brad starting to click, me and Brad. He's getting my humor, and, well, that's all it is. It's one-sided. Originally, in the uh, language that the New Testament was written in, the word referred to a truth that someone was initiated into or brought into. Some of you may have heard the term Gnosticism, and the Gnostics were people who claimed to have a secret knowledge, and part of the way you came into that secret knowledge was you had to be initiated, okay? There are certain ceremonies, and only those who passed through them would gain access to the knowledge. And the word that was used was mysterion, right? That's the Greek word, or mystery. 
in this case, what is the mystery? Well, Paul is, takes great pains to explain that the mystery comes via grace. We have been talking over and over and over again since beginning the series. Look at the title, The Riches of Grace. The, the, the mystery had to be revealed to Paul. And in Christianity, although the mysteries are beyond human discovery, they aren't hidden because they're revealed. That's part of the point. Their discovery is dependent on their being revealed, so they are gracious mysteries. Now, if you look in your worship folder on the other side of, or on the next page, I guess it is, uh, from the passage that I read, you'll see where we're going. Uh, the outline is, is printed for you there. And there are three aspects of the passage that I want to see. First, the messenger of the mystery. Secondly, the mystery itself. And then thirdly, the consequence or a consequence of it. And they're all part of the broader mystery of grace. Because Paul is at great pains to say here, um, everything I've been talking about to you for the first two chapters of the letter are mysterious. I don't fully understand them. And he reveals a couple of things as he works through. So first, he calls himself less than the least. Even though I am less than the least of all the saints. In English, we say the very least, but that doesn't make much sense, does it? Because least is the superlative for those of you English grammar majors out there. But he adds this, I'm less than the least. So does he have low self-esteem or is something else going on here? Well, if you remember Paul's story, we read about it recently in community Bible reading in Acts. Paul hated the church. He didn't just hate the church. He persecuted the church because he hated it. He arranged for the executions of Christian leaders. And he was, well, frankly, a terrorist. The guy that's writing this letter, a terrorist. But God, chapter 2, verse 4, right? Everyone's story at some point. We hope if they're on their way to becoming a Christian, they're not yet a Christian, they already are a Christian. At some point in your story, those two words come in, right? But God. I was, but God. And Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. Do you know what he was on the way to Damascus to do? Execute more Christians. And Jesus reveals himself to Paul, and he says something very interesting. He says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Paul persecuting? Christians. Jesus says, to persecute my people is to persecute me, because they are members of my body. Uh, and Paul does more with that in other letters, not necessarily here. But he reveals himself to Paul, and Paul says that very revelation was an act of grace. So now Paul sees himself as a steward of that same grace. Now, in the ancient world, what kind of person would a king task as a steward? Well, usually a responsible person, a worthy servant, someone that the king can put their trust in, someone who's proven themselves trustworthy and loyal to the king. Who is Paul? Absolutely none of those things. He is by far, bar none, worst church planting pioneer candidate in history. Okay? Easily. I don't care how many people have gone through the MA assessment, and Drew can probably tell you some of them really not very good. And so they say, mm, stamp them, you're not ready. Okay? Uh, try again next time, whatever it might be. 
Paul would have been the worst, okay? And this is a theme throughout the Bible. Another example that I thought of uh, that is one of my favorite stories in all the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 5, you have king, the king of Syria, Naaman, and in the process of conquering uh, parts of Israel, he had a servant girl who was an Israelite. And Naaman had one big problem. Does anybody remember what it was? He was a leper. And uh, he, he had this terrible disease and he wanted to be healed from it. And so this little servant girl says, hey, there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha. You can go to him. He'll probably be able to heal you. Psh, right. And Naaman goes and, of course, ends up uh, getting healed. But God uses, always uses, the least expected characters to accomplish his purposes, which is part of the mystery. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, he says, I am less than the least of all the saints. And then in our assurance of pardon from 1 Timothy 1, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Now, you notice a little bit of a progression there. He says, out of all the people who've been charged with the apostolic office, I'm the least. Of all the saints, I am less than the least. Of all the people on earth, every person, all sinners, I'm the chief. What I want you to know here is, and you may not be aware of this, but those three places were as he got further on in his life chronologically. So he wrote the letter to the Corinthians when he was, I don't know how old, but Ephesians, maybe 10 years later, and 1 Timothy, he's writing to his young protege, Timothy. He was old and I think within maybe five to seven years of dying when he wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus. The point is, as Paul grew in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, he became more stark in his self-description. I had an Old Testament professor in seminary, a very old man. Uh, <laughs> I always has, I'd say very old man, and then I'm going to tell you his age, and some of you are going to be like, oh, that's close to how old I am. You're calling me very old. So I, I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. He was pushing 80, okay? Very old guy. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my dad's, my dad's pushing 80. He's, he's very old too, okay? Um, anyway, this guy was very old, and he's talking to us one day in class, and he was talking about pornography and sexual immorality. And he said, you know, whenever I'm traveling, the first thing I do when I get to the hotel and I'm checking in is I say to the person at the check-in counter, please turn off all the adult channels that you have access to in your, in your um, bank of channels for the hotel TV. What? You are worried you're going to look at the adult channels? Aren't you kind of past that? And one person, I think, rose, raised their hand and, and asked that. And he said, oh, no, brother. He used to call all of his brothers and sisters for the women that were in the room. Oh, no, brother. The closer I am to Jesus, the longer I've walked with Jesus, the more of my sin I see. And that's the same experience Paul had, and I would submit to you, is the design of what our experience should be as well. The closer he got to Jesus, the more acute his sin awareness, because the beauty and wonder and glory of Jesus next to the darkness and wickedness of sin can only grow the chasm, right? Paul is adamant 
in these verses. He's adamant to not give even the slightest credit to himself. Verse 2, he says, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Verse 8, to me, even though I'm the very least of all the saints, the grace was given. Notice, it's all received. It's all passive. It's all gift. He's not taking credit for a single shred of what he's experienced. He's so careful. Why is that? Because he knew salvation is God's work and only God's work. And we've been talking about that since beginning this letter. So I'm not telling you if you've been around something that you've not already heard, but it bears repeating. Because this afternoon and tomorrow morning, you and I are going to go out and we're going to try to live as if it's not true. So we need to be reminded, right? Paul's awareness is connected to his gospel awareness. A constant awareness of my past failure and continuing corruption is not only not contrary, sorry, double negative, it's not only not contrary to a rich apprehension of grace, but it's a necessary companion to a rich apprehension of grace. The exceeding greatness of God's grace in Christ is understood in its fullness only against the black backdrop of my unworthiness. And I've never met, or very few, I should say, men who worshipped like this professor. We, we were, it was judges to poets, so it was a survey class of that section of the Old Testament, and we got to Song of Songs, and we're all, you know, uh, uh, young, stupid males, we're all, all right, what, you know, what's he going to talk about? We, we know what this really says, this book, and so is he really going to get in there and talk about how erotic it is and all that? I can't wait. He got in the middle of the lecture, and he started talking about the love of Jesus for his church, and he started weeping. And of course, you know, we all <laughs> put our head between our, just, oh, I'm so embarrassed. So embarrassed. The exceeding greatness of God's grace in Christ is understood in its fullness only against the black backdrop of my unworthiness. For example, we read Romans 1 this last week in community Bible reading. Now, when you get to verses like this, and I'm going to turn back to it and quote some of them for you. Romans 1, verse 29, when you get to verses like this, which say, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do you read that and go, man, yeah, I know a lot of people like that. I wish they were sitting here reading this with me. Because I'd be like... Or do you think, oh, Jesus, thank you for saving me because that's me. As many of you have heard us say around here, cheer up. You are far worse than you think you are. And we, we, we laugh about that because it is kind of a funny thing, right? But unless that becomes something you truly believe that's as real to you as breathing or gravity, you will not catch the mystery of grace. In our discipleship curriculum uh, called Discipled by Grace, there's a whole unit devoted to the flesh. 
And it can be daunting and even depressing. But the point is, you have to sit in the reality of the flesh's ongoing influence, the bitterness of self-deception, to to understand the 50,000-unit nasties that are buried deep down in your heart, right? Until you do that, you won't appreciate and glory in the sweetness of grace. The mysterious nature of the gospel, how is it that I am saved? How is it that he would save me? It won't captivate you. When you walk into a room full of strangers, do you believe yourself to be the biggest sinner in the room? Are you the chief of sinners among all of your friends? Do they know that? Do you behave as such? And this is not a banner that you wear a shirt, you know, everywhere you go that says, chief of sinners, woohoo, right? It's not that. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. Because, of course, if you're glorying in Jesus above all else, if the mystery of the gospel is not more marvelous to you than your sin, that the chief of sinners would be saved, you're going to be the most humble person, right? You're going to be the least boastful or boisterous person. You're going to be the kindest, the gentlest, the tenderest, right? See, if we were competing with each other for that title, rather than maybe most intelligent, best-looking, highest net worth— we'd be in a position to love best because in God's economy, Jesus said, the more forgiven, the more what? The more love, right? To whom much is forgiven or for whom much is forgiven, much love will result for God and for others. And that was Paul's testimony. This guy is the messenger and there's a great mystery here. But not only that, he says, jump down to verse six. What is... This mystery, he says in in verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles, they're fellow heirs. They share the same inheritance. He says they are members of the same body. It's the only time in the Bible that word is used. Paul made up his own word in verse 6. They are co-corporate is the word. We share the same body. They partake of the same promise. John Stott said, they are fellow heirs of the same blessing, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the same promise. Now, for you and I, who are mostly, I I, I don't know every single one of you in the room, but I'll venture to guess 98% of the room is Gentiles. So we don't fully grasp the import of what Paul is saying here. That for a person who was schooled as he was, for a person who was trained in the law, for a person for whom Judaism was life, for him to discover by revelation, no, the Gentiles. God says, no, Paul, the Gentiles. I'm after the Gentiles. All these privileges come to anyone united to Jesus through the good news of salvation by grace through the gospel. We've talked about this before uh, in the previous chapter, chapter 2, but in Jesus, all religious and ethnic categories are destroyed. The wall of hostility has been demolished. At the cross, we're all leveled out. Remember, this was a man who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man who absolutely despised the church of Jesus Christ, a man who was raised and trained to think of non-Jews as unclean. They were a lost cause. Who do you think is that? Who in your mind is unclean? You know one of those people. You know one of 
they'll never change kind of people. They've so blown it as they're irredeemable. They're anyone, they come to your mind and you think, no, surely not them. Someone, even subconsciously, you think, you know, Jesus had to work harder to save them than me. You know you have them. I do. Maybe it's some of you. I'm just kidding. Just a joke, just a joke. Let me give you some examples. And these are kind of far, these are sort of shock value, but they're, hopefully you get the point, right? Is the person who's had gender reassignment surgery a Gentile to you? Above grace? Or above receiving grace, I should say? The neo-Nazi white supremacist? Maybe a person who has been engaged in pedophilia? The point is, the gospel of Jesus Christ has life-changing power because it is God-working. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Again, we just read it. He calls it the power of God. And it is the gospel's power that can break through to justify the guiltiest sinner, the most corrupt institution, the most dysfunctional family, the most depraved, indulgent culture, anyone, anytime, anywhere. Okay? We have to believe that. Now, it takes work to believe that because of what we see around us, right? Through Jesus Christ, Paul says, anyone, anywhere, at any time has boldness to approach God as well as access to God with confidence. No other religion offers that. It's only possible because of Jesus' gracious provision, his faithful life for my unfaithful one, his blood for my guilt, his body for my rebellion. He did all the work. And Paul is saying, the Gentiles get to have this. He says, I've been chosen to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What does that mean? Have you ever considered what some of the unsearchable riches of Christ are? If you're here and you're a Christian, I trust many of them come to mind pretty easily. If you had a journal, if I handed you a journal with a piece of paper and a pen, I said start writing some of the unsearchable riches of Christ. It wouldn't take you long. You'd get a page in maybe. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me describe some of them to you and maybe it will fire your imagination to say, oh, I, I want that. Okay? Here's what some of, them, uh, some of them are. An exchange of eternal consequence. Jesus gets counted as a sinner in my place so I can be counted as righteous in his place. Forgiveness of sins. Past ones, present ones, future ones. Seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. Raised with Jesus to newness of life. Citizens of God's kingdom. Membership in God's household. A part of Jesus' body. You you realize the gospel says you are naked and exposed in your sin and Jesus comes alongside of you and gives you a robe and covers you and then doesn't say to you, go out there and have fun or go out there and try hard. He says, nope, I'm going to go with you while the robe's on you through my spirit. That's how good these unsearchable riches are. And part of Paul's point is they're exhaustible, excuse me, inexhaustible. If you studied these and considered these for a lifetime, they would only yield the tiniest fraction of understanding them. And he says, I am preaching to the Gentiles, that is to us, the unsearchable riches of Christ, 
by bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. The word for plan is the origin of our word economy. It's this idea of how things are distributed by and through and in grace. It's all of grace. Paul says, in God's economy of grace, the church becomes the conduit, becomes the messenger for unveiling the mystery. And not just church organizationally or corporately as we gather here, but you, us, individually, as we're out in the places we live, work, and play, we are a conduit of that same distribution of grace. And the church isn't made up of only Jews or Gentiles or only Americans. It's all of God's people everywhere. And part of the beauty here, part of what Paul is, part of what's sort of firing up his imagination is that the church is a foretaste, a preview of a new humanity, a new society, where reconciliation is possible between groups like Jews and Gentiles, between Hutus and Tutsis, those are the two tribes in Rwanda, between Israelis and Palestinians, between Russians and Ukrainians. The Gentiles. The Gentiles become co-heirs, co-members of the same body, co-partakers of the promise. That's probably uh, heavy and hopefully sits on you, but man, meditate on that. Think through that uh, the remainder of the day uh, today. What is it like to be counted as part of that? Paul says, that's the mystery. But he goes on, this is where I want to finish, by saying there's uh, another mystery here. The passage is bracketed by two comments about Paul's circumstances And we read them fast, it's easy to miss. So let me go back. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then in the last verse there, in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Right? So where is Paul while he's writing this? He's in prison. In chapter 5, he says, I am uh, preaching the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Now, generally speaking, what is Paul's attitude toward his imprisonment? Yeah, it's, it's church, so you, you're not really supposed to talk back, I know. But his attitude toward his imprisonment was generally one of pretty like, eh, I'm imprisoned. So, I'm keeping, I'll keep writing. In Philippians, he says, hey, the whole palace guard has heard the gospel because I'm in chains. Awesome! This, this is the weirdest prisoner in the history of prisons, okay? Here's a guy sitting in jail, encouraging the Ephesian church to not lose heart. What? Aren't you in prison? We don't want you to lose heart, Paul. He says, no, I don't want you to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Now, I, hopefully this is kind of blowing your mind. It's, it's been blowing mine for a while. In Acts chapter 9, verse 16, Jesus says, Paul, I'm saving you because I want to show you how much you must suffer for me on behalf of the Gentiles. So Jesus was intent on putting Paul through this ringer of suffering. He wanted to build long suffering into Paul as a display of his long suffering. Look back at the assurance of pardon. It's printed for you in your worship folder. Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, As the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. That word is long-suffering. 
So Jesus was trying to teach Paul long-suffering after the pattern of his long-suffering. Mm, okay, I got a mm, okay, that's good. It's something, right? Because there's, there's a lot of, I realize this is somewhat dense, but it's critical. Because only Christianity, only Christianity talks about suffering in this way. And it stands in stark contrast to the modern view. See, in ancient cultures, suffering was seen as an opportunity for growth or a responsibility to take up. It was seen as an instrument whereby you learned humility or honor. It wasn't a surprise. But today, the meaning of life in the West, meaning of life especially in the U.S., is the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom. We've talked about it, expressive individualism. And when that's life's purpose, then suffering is to be avoided at all costs. And when it comes, it's traumatic. One writer says, in our modern world, suffering is a kind of noise. It's an accidental interference in the life of the sufferer. It's this chaotic interruption. See, the modern worldview says we are victims and we need to decontextualize our hard experiences. We're, we're not to connect them to our life story. It's this interruption. I'm in the middle of suffering. I've got to decontextualize, take that out of my life story. It doesn't belong in my life story. Christianity says, no, suffering belongs there because suffering is doing something. Tim Keller summarizes it this way. He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit, in, sit into the midst of life's joys for seeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. It completely flips it. We can understand a lot of Paul's perspective on suffering from the, the passage we read from in uh, the reading of the law in Colossians 1. And it leaves you scratching your head. First of all, what kind of person rejoices in their sufferings? Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Well, notice he doesn't say he rejoices in his suffering. He says, I'm rejoicing in my suffering for the Colossians. He says the same in our passage. His suffering is for the Ephesians. He's the one in chains. He's imprisoned. But he's saying, my suffering is on your behalf. And this is the lesson. Your suffering has nothing to do with you. Its purpose is for others. Just as Jesus' suffering produced glory and unsearchable riches for the Gentiles, Paul says for the church that his suffering and theirs also in the plan of God will produce glory. So see, suffering becomes a tool for the Christian to practice glory management. Now I'm almost done, but what do I mean by that? Jesus' suffering equals my glory. Now follow, follow me here, okay? Jesus' suffering equals my glory. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection achieves glory for me. Amen? Yes, that's true. More than that, though, Jesus is my glory. I glory in him and will one day be glorified with him. Now, how did Jesus manage his glory? Well, he managed it largely through humility, right? Through a lifetime of tiny deaths, a my life for yours kind of love, which culminated in the cross. So when we suffer, this is Paul's point, when we suffer in the pattern of Jesus, when we manage glory in the same way, through humility, and through a my life for yours kind of death, it becomes glory for other people. They see him. They experience him. They wonder at him because of how we suffer. My suffering, brothers and sisters, equals your glory. Your suffering equals my glory. Now, I don't fully understand how that happens. Hence, the reason the whole sermon is on mystery. 
So I'm not trying to tell you I've discovered the answer and I know I can explain the mystery. I'm underscoring, it's a mystery. But I am trying to make sense of how it fits in with the gospel. There was a Ukrainian journalist that turned a fighter. He was 44 and he took up arms and uh, he was killed. And there was an interviewer at his funeral and he was interviewing his wife and his wife said, I cried for two days until they laid him to rest. But after they laid him to rest, I became very proud. And the interviewer said, why is that? She said, because they gave him a military funeral. She said, I didn't want to be the wife of someone who died from being scared, but someone who died because they were brave. His suffering is the glory of Ukraine. So whether it's inconveniences or 2 a.m. diaper changes or cancer or forgiveness or generosity, all love is substitution. I die so you can live. And in the second half of verse 24, Paul says he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. He doesn't mean that he's atoning for the sins of the people. Jesus has already done that. But what he does mean is, I'll use marriage as an illustration. Jesus' death for Jamie, my wife, is complete. Finished on the cross. Done. But my death for Jamie is ongoing. It's never complete. And there is a sense in which I can fill up for Jamie. What she may not realize with respect to Jesus' suffering for her, that is to say, she comes to glory in Jesus more because of my suffering for her. She sees it more clearly. And she glories in him because I'm imitating him. So your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, as they see this pattern, glory results. And Paul says that the riches of this mystery in Colossians 1 is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so if these are exhaustible riches, inexhaustible, sorry, then no matter what I'm facing, whether it's imprisonment like Paul, illness, loss, a wayward child, a cantankerous boss, I have a hope of glory. Christians can rejoice in their sufferings because no suffering can take away our riches in Christ. When I die, when I lose, when I'm disadvantaged for you, glory comes to you because only in Christ can I behave that way. And Paul was able to say, I am rejoicing that I'm in prison for you. And so if we had the same attitude toward one another, I know it sounds crazy, But if we did view our sufferings, minor inconveniences to major things that way, might we move more and more toward imitating the Lord Jesus himself? And might the world come to see more of his glory as a result? Let's pray as we come to this table where it is on display for us very clearly. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we pray that you would enable us to have the same mind, as Paul says in the letter to the church at Philippi, the same mind that was in you, in ourselves, that we would take the form of a servant to serve wherever and whoever and however we are or we can uh, so that we might pursue and end up dying. Maybe not physically so, Certainly not before, or certainly not, certainly not when we, when we don't want to, or it's not our time, or something like that, but to, to die to ourselves, to disadvantage ourselves, and in the doing of that, uh, that, 
those around us, those that we die for, those that we give up for, would come to see more and more your glory, your beauty, wonder at you, uh, Lord Jesus, through our lives. That's our hope. That's our goal. We know that that requires faith. And so increase our faith uh, and increase our courage, we pray in your name and for your sake. Amen. So the last thing you get is a good word, a a benediction. Uh, As you go, God goes with you. And so there are these mays. May this happen. May this happen. May this happen. So as you go, receive this. Hold tight to it because these aren't loose words. These aren't flippant words. These are eternally significant words. Uh, And so if your faith is in Christ, receive them. If your faith is not in Christ, uh, then come ask us, how do I get those words? All you have to do is open your hands and ask him to come. And he will. That's the promise, not only of the gospel, but of these words. So receive them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.